Good to see you all this morning. My name's Wayne Elderton, as Sam said, and uh, I'm a longtime board member. I'll be bringing the message today. Uh, in spite of what the bulletin said, it said it was Sam bringing the message. So this is a bait and switch. It's our new marketing kind of thing that we're doing. Uh, I'd like to thank Pastor Sam for giving me the opportunity to continue the tradition uh, that uh, I have had over the years to deliver the New Year's message. Uh, it seems that the congregation needs about a year to recover between messages, so that's about right. Uh, the title of the message is Jesus Questions, and the, the title has actually a double meaning. It's not only the method that Jesus often used to communicate, I mean, he used questions, but it's also the kinds of questions that he asked. They were Jesus questions, which were always very powerful, and we're going to look at both aspects this morning. You can get a lot out of questions. The story is told of a young girl who was on a bus, and she was reading her Bible. A stranger in the seat beside her noticed and asked, do you actually believe in those fairy tales and myths? She considered his question and confidently answered, yes, I do. The stranger replied, what about that story of that guy who was swallowed by a whale? Do you believe that was true? And she answered, well, his name was Jonah, and he was swallowed by a great fish. Now, she obviously was in Susan's Kingdom Kids. The man rolled his eyes and said, but how can you know that was true? She pondered for a few seconds and provided her solution. Well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah, if it was true. And smirking and now presuming he really did have her now, the man replied, well, what if Jonah isn't in heaven? And considering the question, she responded, well then, I guess you'll have to ask him. <laughs> Some people aren't awake in about 15 minutes, you'll hear someone go, ah, I get it. The message is going to be like a play today that's broken into four parts. After each part, we'll take a brief prayer pause so we can stop and reflect. The first is a prologue just about the power of questions. And the next three acts will delve into a question that Jesus asked during his interaction with people. Act one will be the first question, act two the second, and finally act three will be the final question that we consider today. First off, the prologue, the power of questions. Questions are actually a fitting topic for the New Year's message. So traditionally, New Year's is the time that we reflect on the year past and resolve to do things differently in the year ahead. The ability to question is a spectacular tool the Lord has empowered humans to, that were made in his, his image to use. And I found it to be true that struggling to find the right questions is just as important, if not more, than the answers that they happen to yield. And here's a quote to ponder. Achieving accountability and commitment entails the use of questions through which, in the act of answering, we become co-creators of the world. Powerful questions are the ones that cause you to become an actor as soon as you answer them or even reflect on them. You no longer have the luxury of being a spectator. 
Now, I know from personal experience the power of well-constructed questions. Uh, in my profession, I'm a tennis coach and a coaching educator, actually, by trade, questions are unparalleled for unlocking learning. There's a concept in coaching called push versus pull feedback. And most people think coaching is about telling people what to do, pushing information into them. And there's a place for that. But the most powerful learning comes from pulling answers from them through questions. So they internalize and retain what they have learned. This is actually my favorite quote in all the coaching education courses that I give. I don't remember anything I've been taught, only what I learned. Think about that for a bit. How much were you taught in your life, but how much did you actually retain and learn? Questions help one learn. Being the creator of humans and intimately understanding how we work, our Lord was a master of the art and the science of learning through questions. We see through all the Gospels that through questions, Jesus invites his followers into a new way of believing and being. His questions are an invitation to change, to step out of our narrow and fortified concepts and comfort zones, and to step into a new future. Through questions, Jesus both comforted the afflicted and afflicted the comfortable. As I mentioned, we're going to take a short look at just three of the multitude of questions that Jesus asked. And not only hear what he asked his listeners at the time, but understand that his questions through kingdom extension reverberate down through the centuries and they engage us as well. But first, let's take a quick prayer pause. Let's all bow together. Jesus, you who are the master questioner, provoking us to delve deep into the mystery of who you are, who we are, and the life we share together, we invite you to speak, to ask, to search our hearts, and change our lives. Amen. Okay. <laughs> All right, there we go. That's, that, that's going to be her signal. <laughs> so here's the first question. And it's from Matthew 8, 24 to 27. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and they asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And there's the question. Jesus doesn't say it here, but the command, do not fear, is found in scripture over 120 times. Do you think it may be because it's common for us to have fear? Sam also talked about that last week. Fear, anxiety, and worry are an unholy trinity of attack on our mental health. Statistics say that one in 10 people live with an anxiety disorder. Anxiety is listed as one of the most common mental health conditions in North America. In our culture, 
there is a mental health crisis. My wife, Janice, runs a mood disorder support group out of Granville, actually, called Living Room. It's a faith-based ministry for people with depression and anxiety and bipolar issues. And we know from experience that people in the church are not at all exempt or immune from any of these issues. That's why on the GranvilleChapel.com website, under resources, we actually have a whole section on mental health. And if anyone's interested in that living room support group, they can contact Janice through the email that's provided there. This crisis is actually very troubling, but puzzling at the same time, given that in our culture, the big majority of people are more prosperous, have more material wealth and comfort of life, are more mobile, and are more connected than at any time in human history. Could it be that Jesus is getting to a root cause of many of our issues? One caveat here is that these disorders can actually come from physical, chemical imbalances in the brain, and they have to be treated by medicine and medical professionals. But mixed in with that, there's always issues of mindset and perspective. Is Jesus asking rather than telling so we grow in self-awareness? One remedy for not getting carried along by fear is our self-awareness. Let's do a little exercise. Close your eyes and allow the Lord to bring to mind a current situation that causes you worry, fear, and anxiety. Maybe even thinking about it causes the angst to well up inside of you. Maybe you've even been trying to actively avoid thinking about it. With that situation in mind, hear the voice of Jesus asking you, why are you so afraid? Fear too often dominates our thoughts and our minds. The fear of the future, the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, the fear of loneliness. When we settle for the world's peace, it fails us every time, mostly because it's built on unstable foundations. It promises that you will have peace when, fill in the blanks, when you have enough stuff, when you're financially secure, when you get that degree, when you're in that great relationship, all with God, nowhere in sight. But fear and peace don't coexist very well. If I want to increase my little faith, my fear must decrease. Who my mind is focused on determines if I tip fear or I tip faith. Remember the related story of another boat in the storm? where Peter walked on the water. He was fine when he was focusing on Jesus, but when his focus shifted to the wind and the waves and himself, he began to sink. We, just like Peter at the time, were often people of little faith. But listen to the words of Jesus in John 14, 27. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give you as the world gives, that unstable peace. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. One saying that I've found to ring true in my life is this, the root cause of many issues 
in a Christian's life is a misunderstanding or a misapplication of who God is and what he can do. I'll just put it up on the screen there so you can see it and say it again. The root cause of many issues in a Christian's life is a misunderstanding or a misapplication of who God is and what he can do. We have to understand that's not a matter of telling Jesus about our fears and anxieties, but telling our fears and anxieties about Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And let's take a moment here and we'll take another little prayer pause. Let's bow together. Lord, I pray for those who struggle with anxiety and various phobias. Speak peace to their internal storms. Rebuke the winds and the seas that assail their thoughts and bodies and bring them to emotional safety. Lord, I both name and yield my fears, my anxieties and worries to you. And I receive instead your gifts of hope, assurance, conviction, and faith. Thank you that even my tiny seed of faith can invoke a generous response from you. Amen. And now question number two. There's a lot of text there, so I'll just read it over. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt her bo- in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So here's the question from the text Who touched my clothes? The disciples asked a reasonable question. Jesus, there's tons of people pressing in on you from all sides. What do you mean, who touched me? Everyone is touching you. But the question wasn't meant for them. In the story, we see not only the issues of relationship to our physical bodies, of health and sickness, but relationship to others in the community. We learn that the disease the woman suffered from made her unclean in Jewish society. It made her a societal outcast in more ways than one. But her disease was not outwardly visible. It could be hidden. Calling any attention to herself from the crowd or even from Jesus could expose her. Is there something in my life that I try to hide from others and even from God? Something that others, if they knew about it, would scandalize how I am seen. My own secret shame. It could be from something that's stigmatized from our society. It could be a secret sin that I'm harboring. Jesus' question 
takes me to a choice. Do I accept the visibility of embracing the light? Or do I retreat into the pseudo-safety of the darkness? Do I believe the lie that the darkness is more advantageous to me? Or do I let the light do its transformative work? We can learn from the courage of this woman that even though weighed down by her indignity, she reached out and took hold of Jesus in faith. She believed in who God is and what he can do. And in the end, he did elevate her back into the community by restoring her relationship not only with her own body, but with the community as well. He said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from all of your suffering. That was her suffering physical and communal. In our own stories, despite any secret shame I carry, can I live in faithful expectation that God will act when I make the decision to take hold of Jesus and throw myself at his feet in mercy? Will I allow him to restore me when I answer the question, who touched my clothes? Take a little pause for a prayer break again, so let's pray. Lord, I yield myself to your invitation to act boldly in faith, to take the initiative to reach out and to touch you, to bring the thing I want to hide to Jesus, the all-knowing and ever-loving light of the world, that I might receive what you have for me today. Amen. I hope you're getting a feel for the power of questions and how the answers can cut through even social norms. For example, there's a question that every parent knows, and having three grandchildren who are all boys, I've personally actually seen answered in my own life as well. This is my grandson, Micah, and doing what he does with all of his toys. I think he's, he's getting to know Thanos in the Marvel Universe right there. Hey, come on, if Sam can weave his family into his sermons, I would be a remiss grandfather if I didn't get my grandchildren in there somewhere, okay? Let's look at the final question for today. From Matthew 15, 32 to 36. Here we go. There it is. Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit on the ground, then he took the seven loaves and fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples, and they in turn to the people. And here's the question. In this familiar story of Jesus feeding the 4,000, we hear this puzzling question that Jesus asked his disciples. 
Sometimes these stories are so familiar to us that we just blow right through them and we miss key elements. Think about this question. Why even ask it? Just do the miracle already. Any answer they gave was obviously not going to be enough. The disciples weren't going to say, yeah, Jesus, Peter here has a couple thousand fish that he always brings along with him, you know, being a fisherman and all. I'd like to bring your attention to one of Granville's newly minted values. And it is engagement. Okay, and our descriptor for engagement is this. We intentionally participate with God's reconciliation of all things, being attentive to the people and the places to join his work. And I want to highlight the word participate. Do we have a functional view of participation in God's kingdom? Coming into a balanced view of participation actually radically changed my Christian journey. And let me tell you what I mean. Participation, like so many things in our Christian walk, is is a knife-edge balance. And again, tip too far one way, and we start to take on that we're somehow responsible for God's work, that it's our energy and effort. Our culture is all about maximizing efficiency through shortcuts and the latest technique. As evangelicals, we often tip that way. It's kind of believed that you know, if, you, if you get people responsible like that, it'll get the troops moving. You're responsible. Go out there, go do God's work. Go out there, evangelize. The challenge is that skewed view may get you going, but one quickly realizes how powerless we truly are. And in my experience, tipping too far that way leads to guilt, frustration, and sometimes even broken relationships. And that was true of my early journey as a Christian. Here's what Eugene Peterson, the author of The Message Bible, says about our results-driven misunderstanding of participation. The persons whom I lead in worship want shortcuts. They're impatient for results. They only want the high points. The Christian life cannot mature in such ways. It is a long obedience in the same direction, which the mood of the world does so much to discourage. But if you tip too far the other way, That doesn't work either. If God's powerful enough to do everything on his own, why not just leave it all to him? We're all powerless anyway, right? In the other account of the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples went even so far as to push people away because all they could see is their lack of resources. They told Jesus to send them away. Do we sometimes push people away because we only see our deficiency rather than helping? But participation is not passive. In the story, we see a spectacular object lesson in participation. Jesus' question invites them in. They start with a census that puts their lack of resources front and center, seven loaves and a few small fish for 4,000. 
Jesus didn't need the disciples to give these woefully deficient resources to him to solve the problem, but he asked for them anyway. He then engages their participation by making them the first church communion ushers. The story goes on to say that, curiously, there were 12 baskets of leftovers. Could it be that he arranged it, that there was one basket for each one of them? They learned that in giving away the little they had, they left with more than they could have imagined. God is perfectly capable to reconcile the universe without us, but he invites us to participate with the work he is constantly and already doing everywhere, not just when we're there. Jesus poses that same question to us. How many loaves do you have? God's divine provision is enough and more than enough for our needs and the needs of all the others around us. But he will multiply our participation. We need to engage in a long obedience in the same direction. What I've learned and am still learning is that participation is a way of life and a state of being, mostly through the mundane or ordinary parts of our lives. The greatest ability we need to develop is just our availability. So here's the summary of just three of the many ingenious questions of Jesus that ring through the centuries and lay bare our hearts even today. The common denominator in all of these questions is how they cause us to increase our self-awareness regarding our faith and trust in the one who not only created us, but loves us with a steadfast love and an abundant love, so much that he sacrificed himself for us. Do we believe in who he is and what he can do? As you move tonight into this new year, Take some time to reflect on these three probing questions and the significance that we've seen this morning that each one of these questions has for us. Why are you so afraid? Are my eyes on Jesus or on my storms? Who touched my clothes? Do I have the courage and the faith to reach out to him in spite of any secret shame that I've kept hidden? How many loaves do you have? Can I offer myself and my inadequate resources to participate in God's work in the world? Let's pray. Lord of all, may you take whatever faith we have even if it is as small as the smallest seed, and help us with our fear, with our courage to bring anything to you, and to participate in the everywhere work of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.